This morning, we're going to look at our second meal in this series. It's from Luke chapter 5, and in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is with his relatively new disciples, and they are invited to share a meal with the newest disciple, Matthew, who is also called Levi in our text. Levi and Matthew are the same. He's the author of the gospel of Matthew, and this is his story in Luke chapter 5 of how he encountered a radical Jesus and the meal that ensued and how that radical grace began to change his life. So we're going to read our our passage this morning from Luke 5, starting in verse 27, and we're going to see the story of how this newest disciple was called by Jesus. Starting in verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, they eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding feasts, wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, the wineskins will be ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, no, the old is better. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And this morning we would say that your word is capable of great power. It is capable of penetrating all the way into the joints, into the soul, into the marrow of our hearts. And we pray that it would have that kind of effect on us this morning because we need to reconsider the newness that you offer to us in the gospel and how you make all things new. Would you do that in and through our lives this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now at the end of this passage, Jesus is giving us this parable. And what he is doing with that word picture is he's telling us what this passage is is really all about. The, The picture that he gives us is of a garment. It's an old garment, and there's a new patch. Well, the new patch is pre-shrunk. And so if you take a new patch of clothing and you put it on an old piece of fabric, and then you wash it, what happens? The new patch shrinks. It ruins the whole thing. Same thing with wineskins. New wineskins would have elasticity to them. Old wineskins would begin to to dry out. You couldn't put new wine into old wineskins because they would absolutely burst. And what Jesus is saying here is that he is bringing into Levi's life, and by extension, all those who he would encounter, a newness of life. It's a newness of life that's so radical 
that it actually bursts the old categories, the ways that we would think about relating to God. The people of Israel had all these categories, all these traditions, all these forms and structures when they thought about this is the right way to relate to God. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, when I come, the newness of life that I bring will absolutely disintegrate. It will absolutely destroy, it will burst all the old ways that we've thought about relating to God. It simply cannot accommodate the newness of life I'm bringing. Have you experienced this newness of life? What is this newness of life? What, what can we learn about it from the passage? I think that what Jesus shows us is that it consists of three things. We're going to see it in the text. It's a new priority. It's a new proximity. And it's a new power. And so we're just going to start with the new priority. Right at the beginning in verse 27, we see the new life begins with a call. It says, after this, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, that's Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, he left everything, and he followed him. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there are some really strange and odd people in this world. Um, you've, You've probably encountered them. Maybe you've had uh, maybe you've had dinner with them, or you've been out to eat with them, or um, they've, they've been at their kid's uh, baseball game, or their kid's birthday party, or even, they're even here at church, and suddenly, just in the middle of it, they just get up and walk out the door. They just leave, and, and you go, what is that? Who, who does that? Who just leaves their kid's birthday party? Who just leaves the meal right in the middle of it? Doesn't even, you know, finish the meal, and, and here's what it is. It's because, it's because suddenly they got paged. They got an urgent text on their phone that came in, and they say, I got to get to the hospital right now. So what is it about these doctors that seemingly have no control over their lives and their schedules? They just have to go. Well, what we would say is they're on call. These are people that are on call. You can't just do what you want You don't have any control over your schedule and your time. If you're on call, then you're not in control of your schedule. If you're not on call, then you get to do whatever you want with your schedule and your time. But it's not true if you're on call. What the Bible says is that every Christian has been called. Romans 8.28 is one of our favorite passages. Man, we love that passage. It says, God works all things for our good. For those who love him and are called, who are called according to his purpose. So it's, we love that first part of the verse. I mean, he's working all things. We're actually not going to talk about that part today. We're going to talk about the second part, the often overlooked part. And what we want to say is that those ideas that all who love God and are called according to his purposes, that those things are never mutually exclusive. They always go hand in hand. If you're one of his, if you're in love with God, it means you've been called. Now, there's a lot we could probably say about that, but I want us to notice one theme, and that theme is that to be called means that you're no longer in control. That's what happened for Levi, but we've got to be careful because uh, we can be tempted to look at his experience. Levi is called one time, and he immediately gets up and he, he follows, and sometimes we can be tempted to overemphasize the details of one particular experience. That's actually not how it plays out 
in every story in the Bible. And so we as Christians should be mindful of that. You think about uh, the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, what happens? Jesus runs into Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks him a question, and and almost before he gets the question out, Jesus just says, point blank, you must be born again. But then the very next chapter is John 4, Jesus and the woman at the well. With the woman at the well, he is way slower, way more patient, way tender, and he draws her out before he gives her the call. In John 9, Jesus heals this blind man, this man who's born blind, But really, it's only in their subsequent meetings together that Jesus actually gives him the call. So what we want to be careful of when we look at this passage is that we would not make the details of one person's experience normative for everyone. But still, there is this theme of control, this idea that when I experience the call, then real change and real newness of life become the operating principles that begin to govern who I am and how I think about my world. What does it mean then when we say the call or to be called? What are we talking about when we say that? I think someone can believe in Jesus. I think you can grow up all your life in church. I think you can say all the right things and do all the right things and not ever really have experienced the call. So what is it? I want to put it this way. I think it starts when you begin to feel that someone or something is beginning to press Jesus to first place, to the center of your heart. That maybe if you're honest, you could say for a while, it's been easy to keep Jesus on the periphery. But suddenly, there is a tug, there is a movement, there's something going on in my heart that is saying Jesus belongs first place. He belongs central. It's for him to go from the periphery to the the center of my heart, to the control center, so to speak. So how does that take shape in Levi's life? Where do we see that in the text? Well, Levi is of Jewish heritage, so he grew up in Israel, but he's working for Rome as this toll booth tax collector. Now, if you're a fisherman and Jesus comes to you and he says, I want you to leave everything and follow me. Hey, if things don't work out, you can kind of still go back to being a fisherman. It could be there for you. Well, if you're a toll booth tax collector for, for Rome in this day and age, and you left your booth for a day, it was over. You, you weren't going back. You didn't have a job. You didn't have a means of income anymore. And so essentially, what Levi is saying when he gets up and he follows Jesus is, I don't have a fallback, fallback plan anymore. Uh, The declaration of my heart in this moment is there is no plan B. And Jesus, I am staking my future to you. I'm staking my security to you. Uh, You see, when when we get this, uh, then that's like how the page, when we get this in our own lives, that's the page coming in for us. That's the urgent text. It's suddenly where we move the things that were in the front seat of our lives, we move them to the back seat. And secondly, we see this because Levi in the passage brings Jesus home. He brings him home to share the evening meal. The, the, and he throws a great banquet for Jesus. Now, in this culture, when you brought someone into your home and you shared the evening meal with them, that meant that you were identifying with that person. And the evening meal was always a sign of friendship and intimacy and camaraderie and companionship. It's actually where we get the word companion. Uh, we get it from the Latin word companis, which means with bread, companis, companionship. 
And so if you shared bread, if you shared your table, it meant you are identifying with this person as a companion. But even more so, to bring them to the evening meal meant that they had centermost place of your life and family. And if you did this, you were saying this person is a friend, he is family. This was a boundary marker. So for Levi to bring Jesus home and to bring the other tax collectors and sinners and to throw a banquet for him was Levi's way of saying, Jesus, you're center of my life. You're first place. You go in the middle. So here's how you know when you're called. When you start to find, willingly or not willingly, this sense growing on you that Jesus has to be the most important thing. Has that happened for you? Has it been a while for you? Does he need to be first place again? It's where everything else goes second place. When you begin to sense that tug, that's the pager going off. That's the urgent text coming through. How are you responding to the call? Have you been called? The call is always a sense of priority. It's not just a matter of, you know, once upon a time, I don't think I believed in Jesus, now I do. No, it's more than that. And, and for Jesus, it's a matter, or for Levi, it's a matter of being called and the priority, priority is a mark of that call. Secondly, the grace of God brings about a newness, a newness of life, which consists of a new proximity, okay? A new proximity. What do we mean by that? We mean a closeness. So in Luke 5, 29, it says that then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his home, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating and reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why is it that you eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now, here's what the Pharisees were worried about here. They were worried about contamination. Contamination happens through what? Proximity. It's when two people get close to one another. How do viruses and how do germs spread? Well, you got to be close to one another. And here's how this always works. When a healthy person is in the room with an unhealthy person, who wins? It's not the healthy person, or it's not the unhealthy person that suddenly gets healthy because they've come into close proximity with a healthy person. No, it's the other way around. The healthy person walks into the room with the person that is germ-infested and has the viruses and the bacteria and all the stuff on them, and they're the ones that get contaminated. So this is why Andrew had to get a typhoid fever vaccine before he went on his trip to India, because typhoid can be highly contagious. And nobody wants to be in the same room with somebody that has typhoid. By being in the room with them, you're not making them better. They're making you worse. This is contamination 101. This is how it works. And, uh, and so everybody understands this. And the Pharisees understood this too. But they didn't just think about it physically, you know, in terms of germs and, and uh, diseases. They thought about it spiritually and morally as well. They believe that not only when a healthy person came in contact with an unhealthy person physically would that person be jeopardized, but also when they came into contact with sinners or people who were unclean. And so when they see Jesus eating with these people, it's really obvious to them. I mean, this is, this is just basic, that that is making him unclean. He is not making them clean. That would be unheard of. We wouldn't understand that. And so Jesus does this really unusual thing after he spends time with people. 
after he cleanses the leper. We're going to look at that in a moment. He doesn't go to the priests for cleansing. He doesn't go into the wilderness. He doesn't perform any sacrifices. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And the Pharisees look at that and they go, this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Now, when we think about the Pharisees here, we might think, man, they're so antiquated. This is, the, this is my favorite part of the sermon where we always bash the Pharisees. And we're going to do that again now, right? That's what we're about to do. Uh, they're so backwards. But actually, I want to just say this morning, I want to surprise you. And I want to say, I think that they actually could have a point. That there's something here in their thinking. Because here's how it works for them. We don't, we don't, it's not obvious to us. Because probably we live in a society where we largely think who we are is still a result of our individual choices. We're so individualistic. So your choices don't really affect me. And my choices don't really affect you. But, but that wasn't the case there. And we underestimate the power of community for character formation and spiritual growth. But the Pharisees understood meals. They understood the, the nature of, of a corporate personality and, and of a spiritual body and a group of people. And they understood that meals were incredibly relational. And they, commi- they communicated intimacy and that through these meals, barriers come down and you're identifying. I mean, think about how relational meals are. Have you ever had, tried to have a business meal, like where you were going to get business done over a meal? You almost never get through the agenda. Like you don't get through your talking points or through your checklist. You get in front of somebody and you've got a plan, you know, to tick it off. But what's the reality? The reality is you begin to talk about life and how's things going and, you know, where are you from and how, your family, and suddenly all this relational stuff is happening. It's impossible to have just this task-oriented meal. And, and, and the Pharisees understood that. They understood that meals are intimate. Meals are personal. You could even go so, so far to say is that you will become like the people that you eat with most. That's the way they thought about this. So they're not crazy. They weren't nuts to think like this. You know, a lot of people, uh, and I I sort of alluded to this last week, that when I think about my own spiritual formation, um, you know, I think about meals. Like some people would say the pastor, oh, seminary. Seminary, that's where you really learn to be a pastor. That's where, you know, you learn to be. the And and really that happens largely through the lectures and the, the seminary professors and all the great teaching. It's not true. Actually, where the most spiritual formation happens is not in the lecture hall, but in the cafeteria. Uh, and, and why would that be? Why would it be in the, the kitchen? We're at whatever seminary or the local restaurants near campus. Well, it's because what happens after class? After class, you go out to eat. You sit down with your classmates and you begin to spend time with them. And you say, hey, what, what do you think about what he said? You begin to process what you heard. You begin to say, uh, how did that fit what we heard today with that lecture we heard over there? What would we do about that if we were going to be helping, you know, a group of people think through that? And so there was so much of that that formed me just around a meal as I was in seminary. I'd say that's true for most people. And so it wasn't nuts for these mosaic laws to be what they were. You know, think about the Mosaic laws and how detailed they were with these clean laws and their dietary laws, that they would separate you, basically, they would force you, if you live them out, to so separate yourself from the people around you that you couldn't eat with them. You couldn't do relationship with them. So it's kind of it's interesting that phase one of God's grand missional plan, 
back in the Old Testament is to call a people to himself that he's going to bless so that they can be a blessing to the nations. But first, what does he do? He makes them a holy nation. He does not want them to be contaminated with pagan beliefs, pagan rituals, and pagan idolatry. And so if you actually lived out all the dietary codes and you ate everything you were supposed to eat and didn't eat anything, then you can never eat with anybody except people who are just like you. And so the, the, uh, the Pharisees weren't nuts. It wasn't crazy to think, hey, God is doing something here and it's really important. But then Jesus comes along and he just blasts the dietary laws. He just blows them up. He smashes them. And from the Pharisees' perspective, it looks like he totally ignores them. And they say, you're being defiled. Don't you understand? If you, if you were who you said you are, then, then this would be basic to you. You would understand this. And Jesus' response to them is verse 31. He says, this is why I'm blowing off the rules and the laws. And this is unbelievable. He says in verse 31, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, that sounds pretty wonderful to us because if we're honest, we all know that there's part of our hearts that, that isn't just like, I'm not feeling well, sick, but instead when we consider our sin, we would say, I'm gravely ill. There is bitterness in my life. There's anxiety. There's fear. There's pride, there's insecurity. I feel inferior, I feel superior. And so when we look at our hearts and our lives, it's, it only takes 10 seconds for us to go, yeah, I'm sick. But the Pharisees, when they heard this metaphor, I'm the doctor, it did not compute for them. This did not make any sense to them. Because if you're a doctor and you go into the room of a patient who has Ebola, then the last thing that you want to have happen if you're going to try to help them is to come in close contact with them. That would be crazy because you would get Ebola and nobody, it never works the opposite way. And here's Jesus. He's just walking in. He doesn't have rubber gloves on. He doesn't have a mask on. He doesn't go to the priests. He doesn't go into the wilderness. What are you doing? It's because Jesus is doing something new. He's showing us in this passage that the cleanliness and the holiness and the type of newness that he brings absolutely blows out of the water the old ways of thinking about these clean laws. Let me illustrate it this way. Luke chapter 5. If we see this in action, it'll probably click. But Luke chapter 5 is a great, at the beginning of Luke 5, Jesus encounters a leper. Now the leper in this day and age they had the skin disease. They were absolutely contaminated. They were spiritually, morally, physically unclean, and people were terrified of contracting leprosy. In almost every society, they were thought of dirty, unclean, not just in Jewish society. And so it was illegal for them to come into town, illegal for them to approach anybody. And if you were touched by them, you immediately ran, to the, you ran out of town and you yelled, unclean, unclean, unclean. And here... Leprosy was viewed as a judgment of God, and it was assumed they had sinned in some big way. And here's this leper. In chapter 5, he comes to Jesus. He throws himself down on his knees, and he begins to plead with Jesus. 
And he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this is an incredible request because, first of all, the leper knows that all that has to happen is for Jesus to want him to be clean. That's what it says. If you're willing, you you don't have to like blink three times. You don't have to snap your fingers. You know, you you don't have to give some kind of magical incantation or to have an infinity stone. (laughs) All you need to do is be willing. All you have to do is want to, and I will be healed. And this leper believes that Jesus is able to do it. Now, but what does Jesus do? Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the man. He says, I do want to. I'm willing. Be clean. Now, Jesus doesn't have to do that because of what we just said. We all, we all know that, right? We all know that he doesn't have to touch him. He doesn't have to say anything. So why does he do that? Why does Jesus move towards him in this way? It's to show us the power that he has to do something entirely new. That the gospel is ushering in a new proximity, a new kind of closeness. That throughout all of history, when the unhealthy come in contact with the healthy, the, the healthy lose out, the healthy get infected. But in this situation, Jesus is the clean one. And when he comes in contact with the unclean, in the blink of an eye, that unclean man is made completely well, totally restored. Here's the implication. In my own life, stay away from bad people. Don't associate with people who don't believe in God. Don't associate with people who smoke too much or drink too much or cuss too much. Do not build bridges or friendships because that's dangerous and risky. And stay away from that which is defiled. Keep my kids away. They will contaminate me. But when Jesus Christ touches that man, he says, you are clean instantly, forever. Nothing can make me unclean. Nothing can make me unclean. Is that crazy? Jesus is not afraid. He is not afraid to walk into a world that is broken, that is full of sin and filth and rebellion and wickedness, that's full of the terrifying things that we read about on the news, that's full of the scary stuff that can come up on the internet. Jesus walks right into that world and says, there's nothing here that can contaminate me. I cannot be made unclean. Instead, I will walk right in to this wretched, rebellious world. And if you have an encounter with me, it doesn't matter how much shame you have, how much guilt you have. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done this week, last night, this morning. It does not matter who you are, what you've thought, what you've said, what you've done, who you've hurt. When you come to me, when I relate to you, when you have proximity with me, you are clean. You have holiness. You have righteousness forever. That's the good news. So what this passage is saying is just blowing their minds. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now I want you to think about this. How in the world, that's great for you, Jesus, but how in the world as an ambassador of you, 
as a, one of your disciples, could I ever access that kind of power in my own life? Don't you want to be freed up that way? Don't you want to be freed up the way that uh, Ken, the pastor that Rosaria Butterfield encountered, moved towards her? Don't you want to move towards people that way? She described him as compassionate, non-condescending, and very connected. That's how she described Ken. I would love to be that way, but if I'm honest, it's easy for me to look at the world and to be terrified and to be, and to be worried. But Jesus says, I want to give you something new. I want to give you a new kind of power. So where do we get that power? It has something to do with what Jesus does with our sin. He says he's calling sinners to repentance. What do we have to do with our sin when we become aware of it? Well, either we have to look at other people and see them and see their sin, which will then make us feel a little bit better about ourselves because they're worse off than we are. Or we look too intently at our own sin and we feel shame and guilt And either way, what we walk away from is a fragile holiness. We have to keep working to maintain our holiness and our purity because if I mess it up bad enough, well, I'm not sure what will happen. And so we stay away from people. We stay on the sidelines. We don't engage. And Jesus is saying, look, if you encounter me, I am giving you industrial strength holiness it can, you cannot be contaminated. I am with you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Do you believe that? Here's where the power comes from. Verse 33. There's sort of this question, there's this rebuttal to Jesus. Um, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. And so they're asking, why? why? Why do we follow the dietary laws? Why do we follow all these rituals? Why do we do all this stuff? But your disciples, they don't do any of it. And Jesus says, in response, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. So what Jesus is saying here is my relationship is not just about proximity anymore. It's about total intimacy and closeness. That's the picture he gives them. The bridegroom coming for his bride. Suddenly what Jesus is offering is no longer a shepherd to his sheep. It's not just the way that a king would relate to his servants, but he's offering us a new picture. He's offering, he's offering a picture of total intimacy, the way that could only be analogous to a husband and a wife, the way that a husband and a wife would share intimacy, that they would be one. He's saying the Lord of the universe wants to have that kind of relationship to you. So when you consider that and when you understand that and when you put your faith in Christ, what you're signing up for is something of a new kind of permanence, that something of new intimacy and what that's meant to create in us is a new joy, a new security that should free us up in ways that are unimaginable. Wow. And so the reason that Jesus can say this is because he says, but one day I'm going to have to be taken away. The bridegroom will have to be taken away. I think what's uh, in the back of Jesus' mind in that moment is Isaiah 53, 8. 
Listen to what Isaiah 53, 8 says. I think we have it on the screen. He says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Why would you be taken away? Well, if you were unclean and you had broken one of these laws or come into contact with somebody that was unclean, you were taken away and you were taken out into the wilderness and you were cut off from the land of the living. And that's what happened to the unclean to lepers. They experienced the oppression, the judgment of God. But what does it say? For he was cut off. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. How can Jesus actually make unclean people clean? How can his holiness be imputed to us? It's because he was willing to go into the wilderness. He was willing to be cut off from the land of the living. He is willing to take his holiness and impute it to us, to give us his righteousness. And if the bridegroom was taken away, it means he went to the cross and he says, it is finished. And if the, if the bridegroom says to you that it is finished, then that means it's finished and it's done. And your holiness is industrial strength. He took our infirmities, he took our diseases, and by his stripes we were healed. He became the outcast, he became the leper. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that power that allows us to walk into a world and not be afraid that they can contaminate us. And when you're a recipient of grace, you don't have to draw the lines anymore between us and them. Like, we're the insiders, we're the good, they're the bad. As we begin to, uh, one of the things that Jesus says here that's incredible, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And, um, And so one of the ways that we access this incredible gift of grace that he offers us this morning is through repentance, And we might not think that repentance is um, something we would look forward to, but I want to kind of close with this illustration as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table. I have a friend named James who was in a discipleship group with me at uh, my old church in Dahlonega. James uh, lost his dad to a melanoma when he was 13. James's dad was, uh, you know, one of those guys that would you know, have things going on, and he would just sort of ignore it, because that's what you did. You know, you didn't go to the doctor for all these little things, and so he ignored a serious mole that he had, which became, uh, which spread throughout his body, and he lost his dad when he was 13 years old. Now, James uh, himself, you know, has decided, I'm going to do this a lot differently, Uh, but unfortunately, he has a lot of moles, and so he, he goes a lot to the doctor, and he'll get them checked out. And so he was telling me that not too long ago, he went to the doctor, the dermatologist, and said, you know, I've got all these moles, and you know, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? And he's like, I'm sure. You're good. You are good. Clean bill of health. Um, you're good. And, uh, and James said, I, I appreciate that, but this is probably going to be what gets me isn't it? It's these moles. I got a lot of them. And his, his doctor said, actually, it's just the opposite. Uh, because you have all of these, you're going to come see me a lot. And because you keep coming to me, 
That's probably going to save your life. You know what Jesus is saying here, uh, I think in this passage, is that we don't like our sin a whole lot. We're really uh, ashamed of our brokenness and our weakness and our, you know, the places where we screw it up. But Jesus is saying, look, I've purchased for you a righteousness that cannot be touched. It's firm. It's fixed. It's a complete holiness. And I've given it to you. And so now as you experience sin, I don't want you to run from it. I don't want you to be ashamed of it. Instead, I want you to recognize it, to be aware of it, and to come running to me for cleansing and renewal. And that will save your life. You know what Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria Butterfield I can say, you know, you know who I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> she, said, uh, she said, something clicked for me when I started spending time with Ken. He invited me over to his house for meals. And as he prayed, I mean, think about the way you pray for your meal. Oh, Lord, thank you for this, this, this. God bless us, nourish our bodies. Amen. But that's not the way Ken prayed. When Ken prayed for their meal, he was vulnerable, and he was honest about his sin. And she started hearing him confess his sin, and it broke her heart. And she said, man, I've never seen anybody this honest about their sin. It's actually sometimes, brothers and sisters, our weakness, our sin, the broken places in our life where we experience grace and shockingly invite other people in to the table. Let's pray about that. And let's come to the table ourselves. Father in heaven, uh, we're asking that you would do something new in our lives. And... Um, I know that there are places in my heart and my life right now where I would be afraid to spend time with somebody that would be intimidating for me or might believe different things that I might not have all the answers. And what if their questions made me doubt? What would my doubts say about my salvation? But you know, Lord, I think that... Um, but you want me to focus on you and, and you want to do something big in our hearts and our lives. You want to move us off of ourselves and reestablish yourself as the center. And I pray that as we consider the gospel this morning, as we consider uh, your work on the cross for us and what you invited Levi into here, that you really would give us a new holiness, a new courage a new compassion that would make us free, the freest of all people, to engage and to love and to serve even people who would otherwise scare us or intimidate us or think differently than us. God, pray, pray that you would make this church a holy people to be a blessing to this community, uh, a light in this world. I want to be that way. And I know my brothers and sisters do here do as well. So would you, would you form that in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.